Welcome to the Think Like Amazon podcast, the show where I sit down with former Amazon executives to discuss Amazon's unique principles and processes and tease out how you can apply them to grow and manage your business. I'm Tyler Wallace, a seven-year former Amazonian, current brand consultant, and your host as we learn to think like Amazon. Welcome to the Think Like Amazon podcast. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Ronak Patel to the show. Ronak spent over nine years at Amazon, where he led large businesses across fulfillment, ultra-fast delivery, real estate, process improvement, and last-mile delivery. Ronak was also the youngest regional director in Amazon history, with placement into Amazon's highest volume, most critical region of fulfillment. Ronak left Amazon in 2020 and is now the chief supply chain officer for Odeco, an enterprise-grade software platform and solution that empowers small business owners. Ronak, welcome to the show. Hey, Tyler, appreciate you having me. Well, it's, it's my treat. You've definitely got an interesting background, so I'm really excited to get into this and share a little bit more of who you are with the audience here. So maybe to kick it off, can you just tell us a little bit more about who you are and, and your career journey through Amazon? Yeah, totally. Pretty simple person, born and raised in Tennessee, went to University of Tennessee, figured out I wanted to go into supply chains, what I majored in, went to work for a paper company in Georgia, quickly realized I did not want to do anything with analytics and sit behind a desk all day. I loved numbers, but didn't love crunching numbers all day. Went back home, declined the full-time offers, an internship was like a six-month co-op, declined the offer, went back home, I'll just figure out what I want to do afterwards. And sure enough, Amazon was expanding its first fulfillment center in Tennessee back in 2011. And one of the interns that uh, worked with me at the previous co-op reached out to me and said, hey, you should reach out to Amazon. They're hiring. There's this role called an area manager role. You'd probably really love it. You're very much a people person. I said, okay, I'll, I'll definitely look into this. And keep in mind, this is 2011, just recently graduated. Only thing I was really buying from Amazon at the time was like textbooks for college. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll look into it, figure out what this is. And once again, I had no idea what area manager meant. I, I knew the word area and I knew the word manager, <laughs> <laughs> nothing else. So I applied, I went through the interview process, toured a warehouse in Hebron, Kentucky, fell in love with the operations, fell in love with the, what the role was, the team there, went through the interview process, got the position, and then started out as a frontline leader at Amazon variety of different operational roles, starting out as an area manager and then moved over to corporate, got an opportunity to go to Germany for a year and moved to Seattle for two years, worked on a few different projects. We had just acquired Kiva and then Prime Now, the one hour, two hour delivery service, worked on those two projects. Got bored of sitting on my butt in Seattle, didn't like the weather as much and decided to move back to Tennessee where I got an opportunity to lead a fulfillment center here in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And then luck was on my side. I'm, I'm a big believer in luck and fate and things worked out and got promoted to regional director where I got an opportunity to lead the entire Northeast. So this was New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, and Baltimore. Great opportunity. And then that somehow ended up back into corporate. I got drafted into a role leading the fleet teams. If you've ever seen the prime vehicles on the road, my team was responsible for managing those vehicles. So short time there, but a fun time in terms of each different role that I had. So those trucks that I see on the freeway that say, there's more to Prime, a truckload more. 
that was this fleet team. Exactly. Anything from the not so fun stuff like DOT regulations to the the fun, cool stuff like how do we figure out how to fuel these vehicles overnight so our drivers don't have to, or how do we do mobile maintenance so that these delivery service partners don't have to waste their entire day trying to do an oil change. Wow. A lot of fun problems to solve there. A lot of our guests in the past have started their careers in Seattle at the corporate headquarters. So yours is a little bit different in that you started in operations at a fulfillment center, but then you did spend some time in Seattle as well. So I'm curious, you gave us the background on why you liked operations and why Tennessee, what pulled you away from that to Europe and then Seattle? I actually have never sought out a role at Amazon. So once I got in, I basically focused on the task at hand, try to be the best possible in that particular role. I'm a, a big believer in the deliver results leadership principle. I actually have a unique stance on it, which is my stance is in order to really deliver and nail that leadership principle, you have to do all the other ones really well, especially if we're talking about delivering results over an extended period of time. So I truly focus on that one leadership principle and figured out like, hey, if I can nail it, if I can deliver results in the current role I'm in, I'll be given other opportunities to do different things. So I talked about luck and fate and a little bit of hard work. And I think the two really worked out for me where the building I was at was in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, ended up being one of the most successful launches in Amazon history in terms of how quickly it got to the productivity levels it was supposed to. Based on that, individuals reached out to me and said, hey, we need some help in our European fulfillment centers. And you clearly were running flow in this building and you were one of the key reasons why this building was successful. I, once again, don't think that. I think the 60 plus leaders, but at the end of the day, a luck fate and a little bit of hard work worked out for me and I got asked to go to Germany. I didn't know anything at the time. I think it's the first time I actually even visited Europe at that time. And there's a famous Dave Clark story out there where he didn't even have a passport and he went to Japan to go open up the first Japan location. And I was like, oh my God, this is like such a similar situation where I'm actually being asked to go to Germany to help teach and improve the productivity in those German fulfillment centers. Like, how can I not take this opportunity? So the opportunity was provided to me. I took it and then similar opportunities kept coming up over time. And I never said no to those opportunities opportunities. There was definitely a few where I was like, do I really want to do this? But I ended up trusting my leaders and ended up taking care of me. Among many other qualities, you had a good attitude throughout all of this. You mentioned the leadership principle, deliver results. And for those that are listening that might not be as familiar with that principle, Amazon defines deliver results as leaders focus on the key inputs for their business and deliver them with the right quality and in a timely fashion. Despite setbacks, they rise to the occasion and never settle. Rodak, you made a comment a moment ago that you have to do the other leadership principles well to be able to deliver results. Can you tell us a bit more about that idea, how deliver results played into your success at Amazon and how the other leadership principles interplay with it? Yeah. So if we just stick to maybe one leadership principle, it earns trust as one of the leadership principles, right? It's like if you were to deliver results for a short period of time, and that's all you focused on, you could probably do that without earning trust, but you'll probably not last very long and you'll probably burn bridges. And when you look behind yourself, there'll probably be a bunch of walls broken down, uh, a bunch of mess that needs to be cleaned up behind you. So if you're trying to deliver results over an extended period of time, you do have to nail the earns trust piece because eventually you're going to need 
meet people, you're going to lead people. So it's not a me, myself, I situation, regardless of what role you're in. So even if you're in an individual contributor role, like a program manager role where you don't have direct reports, you're still going to have to influence other people. And the best way to influence people is earning their trust. So that's an example of how I feel that the earned trust leadership principles and input that goes into delivering results or inventing and simplifying over time. Yes, you can benchmark. Yes, you can do the same thing over and over and get better uh, and make incremental progress. So each one of those leadership principles, I think, goes back into delivering results. I can definitely talk more about my time as a general manager. I think that's probably where I learned the most and also had the most failures as well. Before we jump to that, I think it's really interesting what you shared there about earn trust and deliver results. Going back to the definition that says the leaders focus on the key inputs and deliver them with the right quality. I think it's easy to read that or hear that and think about the business metrics, but the way that you phrased it, it really speaks to the soft skill inputs to delivering results. Like these other leadership principles, such as earn trust, that can be inputs to long-term results for the business. So your time as a general manager, and this is when you came back to Tennessee. I was just an assistant general manager at that time. So I actually did not want to come back to Tennessee. I wanted to go to Tampa, Florida. It was one of the highest performing fulfillment centers that Amazon had. And I'd been in Seattle for two years at that time. So I was like, hey, I want to go learn from the best. I want to go learn from this new technology that we have, Amazon Robotics. I, I don't want to go anywhere else. Like, Why would I go anywhere else? And the vice president of operations at that time said, hey, like, you're not going to learn anything from going there. They're already doing really well. That building is running on autopilot. You actually need to go to the worst performing building. And coincidentally, Ronick, it's where you started. And you need to go to that building and fix it. And I'm thinking, why would I go to this older building that doesn't have Amazon Robotics, which is the newest technology? It doesn't have all these other things that all these new buildings have. So why would I go there? It doesn't make sense for me in my career. And that's probably the one where I debated the most, like, hey, should I really take this opportunity or not? And I ended up trusting my leaders. And the core reason for that trust was because they explained they themselves in their careers had gone to these fix-it assignments where the odds were against them. They talk about their crucible moments and how this shaped their entire careers. So Dave Clark talks about his Campbellsville, Kentucky days. And there's a lot of people that talk about their Lexington days. These are like the original Amazon fulfillment centers way back when. And to me, I was like, oh, this is like a very similar scenario for me where this is the number 17 worst performing building out of 18 buildings in the U.S., I've been out of operations for two years. Can I really hack it? Can I really do this? And, and oh, by the way, I'm skipping a bunch of levels because I got promoted two times in Seattle. So I'm going back as the assistant general manager of the building. So I was never the ops manager that runs a shift. I was never a senior ops manager that runs an entire day shift or night shift. I was going straight into the assistant general manager role. So anyways, that was probably the the role where I learned the most, had the greatest failures, the deliver results principle, I think, was a keen interest of mine at that point in time because the numbers said it themselves. We were literally the 17th worst performing building. And the way that's calculated is through people metrics, through quality metrics, through cost metrics, and safety metrics. Those are the, the four metrics that usually went into that. So I ended up taking that assignment. I was 26 or 27 years old, leading a building that 2,800 employees, extremely daunting, three weeks in 
into me getting there, the general manager that the company left or was asked to leave. We don't need to get into the details there. As you guys can tell, it's the 17th worst performing building. There's probably a legitimate reason for that person not to be there. So anyways, took over the building as a 27-year-old and I made a bunch of mistakes. But the things I think I did do really well was focusing on people and focusing on customers. So I'm a big, big fan of focusing on the frontline leaders. This is where you can actually learn the most and what's actually happening. So I would bypass all levels of leadership below me and go straight to the hourly employees that were doing the tasks. And I would learn so much from them. And then what happened was those learnings were true in terms of what was going on on the floor. And then I would actually get feedback from them like, hey, this is what's going on, or we don't appreciate this. We don't appreciate that. And I would act on that feedback and it turned into this virtuous cycle. They saw me acting on their feedback, so they would give me more feedback. So I actually ended up knowing more about the operations, knowing more about the problems that we were running into than what the leadership team did. So it was a super unique experience. Over the course of 11 months or so, we went from being number 17 to number one, which was extremely impressive. That's a huge accomplishment. And I'm very interested to understand a little bit more because I think most of us have had those experiences where we've dug into a customer anecdote and we've really turned things around at a one-to-one level. But with 2,800 employees, I have to assume that you couldn't spend time with each one of them and you couldn't triage every single issue on the front line. How did you, with your limited time and bandwidth, turn the ship around and really deliver results at scale across so many employees. I think the key way to do this for anybody and everybody, usually when you're in this big people business, it's usually culture, right? So when you think about large operations, it's the culture of the building. And that's usually a buzzword that people just throw around. Oh, it's the culture of the building. But most operators can walk in a building and see the body language of people. And if you make eye-to-eye contact and you smile, do they smile back when you ask them how their day is going? Do they want to actually interact with you? And those types of intangibles actually tell you a lot about the building and the morale in the building and the culture. So I I focused a lot on how do you fix the culture and improve it? Because this building was one of the top performing buildings and had to slid over time. So it wasn't that the people weren't working hard or didn't want to be one of the best performing operations out there. They just didn't know how to be there. So a lot of people talk about what good looks like and how do you actually teach people what good looks like. This particular example, that was the problem, right? The team was no longer the same team that it was when it was a high-performing building. So in the defense of all the leaders and all the employees that were in there, they had never seen what good looks like. In their eyes, hey, we're doing everything we possibly could be doing. We're working X amount of hours. We're on the floor. We're doing all these things. We're not seeing the results that we need. So I focus a lot on creating the culture. And by doing that, and I guess how to do that first, is really getting people to focus in on a core number of things that you want them to focus on to drive a changing culture. So I'll give you a story. My first day in the building, I spent an hour cleaning a whiteboard. And it was in between shift change and every single leader kept coming up to me like, hey, we can get someone to do that for you. Or, hey, we can have the janitorial staff clean it for you. No big deal. There was like whiteboard tape on it, you know, like the black whiteboard tape that you have to like use your fingernails to peel off. So I literally used my fingernails and peeled off tape for an hour. And I did it during the time it was between 5 to 6 p.m. when leaders were going through that room. And I did it deliberately because I wanted them to know if I spent an hour cleaning that whiteboard, Whatever I put on that board was going to be 
super important, super, super important. So I put four things down, super simple things. We're always going to focus on the safety of our employees. That is the most important thing that we possibly do. Number two, we're going to be on the floor and leading from the floor where our people are actually working. Number three is more of an operational thing, but I, I basically wrote down WIP, which is uh, work in progress and dwell management. It's basically making sure that product is flowing. So like setting our employees up for success, right? A, a packer can't actually pack if there's no work in front of them. And that's up to the leaders to ensure that we're actually doing that. And the last thing was associate engagement, like actually engaging with the people and being leaders on the floor. So I said, hey, I don't want you guys worrying about anything else. These are the only four things I want you worrying about. And if anybody asks you from outside this building, a regional director asks, whoever asks you questions, point them back to me. I'll take the blame. I'll make sure I cover for you guys. But these are the only four things I want you to worry about. And it simplified kind of what they were working on. It eliminated half the nonsense that they were working on in terms of bridging things that somebody had asked them three months ago or five months ago that was no longer important. So it got them focused in on, okay, these are the only four things. And if someone asks me, I can never get called out. I will never get in trouble as long as I do these four things. So that got the team kind of rallied behind me in terms of, like, okay, if I do these four things, we're hopefully going in the right direction. It is important that whatever those four things are, those probably have to be right. Otherwise, you're going to steer your team in the wrong direction. So that was step one in terms of getting the team aligned uh, on where we're going and how we're going to go there. I think step two for me was truly leading from the front. I would do what some people would call quirky things. Like every Thursday morning, I would go sweep cigarette butts in front of the entrance of the building. And that was my way of engaging with people coming in. And I would literally go grab a broom and I'd literally sweep cigarette butts off the, the front of the entrances. And once again, my leaders would be like, hey, like, do you really need to do that? We can get someone to do that for you. I was like, no, I, I love doing this. And oh, by the way, I get to meet everybody as they're walking into the building. So that kept giving me more and more opportunities to get feedback from different people and what was going on. So there's a variety of different tactics that you can take. Mine was simplifying things to ensure that people focus on the right things and then leading from the front in terms of understanding what the employees, the, the, the lowest possible level that you can go to, understanding what they're going through. So for those that are not in operations, this could all absolutely work in corporate as well, right? So a lot of people do skip levels. Skip levels is great, but it's only one level below you. What happens when you're leading an entire team that's 10 levels and six levels, whatever the case is, how do you still understand what's going on the front line? And there's so many different ways of doing that. There's birthday roundtables that Amazon does where you do roundtables with everybody for that month. There's countless ways to get that type of interaction. So highly recommend it. I love those examples. And I just have to follow up and double click into those key areas that you picked. I understand that those were for that situation and those might not be for other situations, but how did you get to a place where you were confident that you had identified those right inputs? For that particular situation, I started with the people once again. Usually if you treat your people right, take care of them and set them up for success, the team will win. So I said, okay, cool. Safety has to be the, the utmost priority for what we're doing. We talked about on the floor leadership. That's a big one for me. Even to this day at, at Odeco, I'm, I'm big on making sure that you're actually leading from the front. So my general manager's desk was in between pack lines on the floor. So I would actually stand on the floor and 
we talked about people side of things, but it's also the process side of things as well, right? So if you're actually on the floor, you can actually see things, you can hear things, like the actual equipment, is it running? When is it going down? How frequently is it going down? Why is it going down? All, all those different, different types of things. You can actually see, feel, hear if you're on the floor where the action is happening. So to me, that was a big one. And then the other two that I mentioned in terms of associate engagement, like that is the culture side of things, right? So we talked about building a culture. If you're not on the floor, if you're in the offices 24-7, how are you actually engaging with the, the team that you're leading, the team that you're supposed to be going about for every single day? So to me, associate engagement was a big one. Understanding your team, understanding what motivates them, what they have going on in their personal lives that might be impacting their work lives. Jeff Bezos talks about work-life harmony and not work-life balance. And if you don't know your team and if you don't know what's going on, how are you going to help them achieve that? So for me, associate engagement was a, a really big one. I think it's helpful to understand that you really connected with those frontline associates. Dive deep is another Amazon leadership principle. You dove deep into what was going on, into the people, and that's how you identified. I'm sure that all of this was a lot more difficult in actually implementation than it sounds in hindsight, beyond just identifying those key areas and then getting the focus of the organization and the site on those areas. Were there any unanticipated setbacks or challenges that made things rougher than you anticipated. Totally. Dude, I was 27 at this time and I had no idea what I was doing leading this many people. So I think that in terms of big setbacks and big learnings for me in particular was leveraging kind of the team around me, right? So as a general manager of the building, you have an HR partner, you have a finance partner, you have a facilities partner and not doing everything on your own. So that was a, probably the biggest setback for me where I remember my regional director coming back to me and saying, hey, you were the general manager of this building and you're supposed to run the entire building not just be on the floor driving the shift like you're literally running the shift how is that going to work when you're not there how is the team going to be able to run the, the shift that you're driving right now so I think the biggest setback for me was understanding the resources I had at my disposal uh, at that time. And like everyone wanted to win. It wasn't just me, right? So so I think that was probably my biggest setback. One of the biggest learnings from that particular opportunity was transparency. A lot of people didn't know where the building stood and why it stood where it stood in terms of performance. And I do think this is extremely relatable regardless of what role you're in. I'm a big believer in leading with transparency. I remember actually doing an all hands where the entire building was there for that particular day. And you usually do four or five of these all hands because the rooms are just not big enough to sit this many people. So anyways, in that first all hands, I, I remember, I was like, hey, I'm just going to tell the entire building, like, here's where we stand. Here's why we stand where we stand. So I, I remember before I put the slide up, I asked the team, I was like, hey, anyone know how the building's performing? People randomly started shouting out answers. Oh, we're doing really well. We're probably in the middle. We're average. I was like, what if I told you guys we're actually second to last the entire network and the room goes silent, completely silent. And I, I pull up the screen. I was like, here you go. We're actually the worst in safety. We're the worst in productivity. We're decent in people. And I, I went through all the metrics and it, it was this utter shock in the room, like no way that we're this bad. And 
to me, I was like, why do we not just tell the team? Like nobody wants to be last and nobody wants to not be successful in their roles. And transparency is, I think, a big, big reason why we were successful. So going back to your question in terms of setbacks, I probably should have been even more transparent earlier and leveraged the team that I had around me to drive greater success faster. That's awesome. And again, ties back into earn trust as well. You, you probably have a plethora of additional examples that, that would be really interesting to get to. But in the interest of time, I do want to shift a bit now to your post Amazon experiences to start. What mental models or principles from Amazon have proved helpful for you in your current role at Adeco? Yeah. So I'm big on people process tech and anytime I'm problem solving something or working through change management, there's all the different departments and operations and all the different people that this change might impact. So you walk through that same thing from a process perspective, like, hey, if we're making a change to this process, how does this impact what's going on? And the same thing on the tech perspective. So anytime from a decision-making framework perspective, in terms of mental models, I, I, I like to stick with people process tech and understand the different impacts that whatever knob or lever we're pulling and how it impacts the people, the process, and the technology that we're using. And typically, I think when I've used that, it ensures that less things fall through the cracks. I mean, it's rare that we always see everything that's around the corner, but it helps ensure that we're planning accordingly and mitigating as much risk as possible. Amazon also really leans on this idea of mechanisms to help apply learnings and solutions at scale. Are there any mechanisms that were influenced in your career at Amazon that you found actually apply at Odeco or outside of Amazon? Totally. Even just like Amazon's a very data-driven company. And even we talk about goal setting and there's a ops planning cycle one and ops planning cycle two at Amazon. And every company has its own version of planning, but the rigorous exercise that Amazon made you go through, I think I had a bunch of learnings from that and try to apply those learnings to where I'm at right now. And even simple things like a, a weekly business review, uh, I've taken that, for example, from and a lot of companies do weekly business reviews, but I've kind of crafted it to my own version of this where it's very uh, metrics driven. Your previous podcast, you talk about monthly business reviews and people talk about P0 metrics. Uh, so I've kind of blended a lot of this stuff where in this WBR that I'm currently driving, my team does hits and misses which is typically done in a, a business review uh, or a document writing style exercise. So they'll pull up their prior week hits, misses. They'll actually have their metrics. And they'll also talk about like forward looking, hey, this is what we're looking at and then risks as well. So super small team. We're trying to be agile and nimble as possible. So we're taking things that we've seen work well, specifically the weekly business review, adjusting it to what works well with us, where, where we don't want the call out kind of culture and we're working ahead of time and we're doing like a much more positive spin to that. So I think the WBR is an excellent mechanism to keep track of the business and ensure we're making progress and trying to see around corners in the future. How do you inspect your weekly business reviews and make them fit the situation. I'm big on having the team 
come up with solutions from the ground level versus top down. The reason why I'm big on that is because you get a lot more buy-in to whatever you're driving. So I did not actually say, hey, like I want you guys to do this WBR. It has to be done this way. And oh, by the way, you should include all these different things. I actually provided the team a bunch of different examples and say, hey, here's all this material take what you want from it. I'm here as a resource to help you, but would love to review prior week's performance and also talk about forward-looking risk and how a team's looking into that and working on that. And the team actually said, okay, we'll take this from here, take this from that, and then made their own weekly business review. Then we do adjust based on risks uh, that are coming up. So for example, hiring. So we're a startup and we're growing at a rapid pace and we're hiring like crazy. Typically, that would not go into a, a weekly business review that's very metrics focused. But I was like, hey, like we should actually talk about hiring. We should talk about how many candidates we have in the funnel and how many people we need to interview those candidates and why are we not seeing more inflow into the funnel in terms of applicants. So we'll add different things based on where we're at right now uh, and then remove things that might not be material anymore. So that's a great example. You know, it- We've covered a lot of really interesting experiences, and I appreciate you digging into a few stories. As we get to the end of the podcast here, what advice would you offer to other business or operations professionals that are really looking to scale their impact and deliver results in their careers? This is a little bit of a controversial one, Tyler. I'm big on learning about your own opportunities and doubling down on those opportunities, but you don't have to necessarily make them strengths. Right. So a lot of people say, hey, go focus on your weakness and make it a strength of yours. And we're all humans. We're all different. We all have different skill sets. We have different traits. And a lot of us have a bunch of different superpowers. So my take is go figure out your opportunities. Definitely work on those so that you're no longer deficient in anything, right? So you should at least be average and whatever your opportunity might be, but it doesn't have to be a superpower of yours. So I actually tell people, focus on your superpowers, continue making those even greater strengths of yours. And then any sort of opportunities and growth areas you might have, definitely work on them, but don't over-index to where you're trying to make it a quote-unquote strength of yours. So I'm a very analytical person, not the greatest at having fun. I know that's one of my opportunities. I surround myself with people deliberately that are really good at having fun to make up for my opportunities because I could try for 15 years, but I'll probably never be the most quote unquote fun person because that's just not me. I think winning is fun and not everyone thinks that way. So to me, like like literally the definition of fun is winning. And that's probably because I'm extremely competitive. But you also have to recognize not everyone agrees with that logic and it's not necessarily the right logic. So for me, I would recommend find your opportunities, work on those opportunities, but they don't actually have to be strengths of yours. Continue focusing on your strengths because that's what makes you different. Fantastic final advice there. And for what it's worth, I think this conversation has been a lot of fun. So I'd give you good marks there. It's been really fascinating, Ronak, to go through, in my opinion, a very unique career journey through Amazon and now on to doing some really interesting things outside of Amazon and using some of the principles and mental models from that experience. Where can listeners follow you or learn more about Odeco? I'm not really big on social media, but I do have a LinkedIn account and I do try to be active in that. So definitely reach out to me via LinkedIn or if you're ever in Nashville and want to listen to some live music and get some good food, hit me up on LinkedIn and I'll happy to show you around. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Ronak. Been a real pleasure. Absolutely. Likewise, Tyler.